Good morning. So obviously, uh, I'm honored to be back with you. I'm saddened by the reason that uh, I'm back with you and have been praying for Mark consistently this past week. Um, I also secretly hope he's not watching because uh, as I, you know, normally when I write uh, sermons, I, um, I actually write frequently, I write them for you guys first because it's easier to translate from uh, a message for adults to students rather than vice versa. So frequently I'll preach something here and then kind of translate it to the students. I looked through the whole directory and everything. There is a slight chance that I preached this like five or six years ago here. Uh, I believe that it's different than when I did that. If some of you have just an unbelievable memory, maybe just pretend you're hearing it for the first time. If Mark asks you about it, just say it was something new you'd never heard before. That was incredible. Um, so there we go. Uh, poor Lily and Caroline uh, in particular, if you're a Stony Brook student um, and you were at this church, that means you hear me preach some stuff here, some stuff at Stony Brook, some stuff at a retreat. You basically just get Andrew Barber all the time. You're probably sick of hearing me. Uh, so show some extra sympathy for Lily and Caroline this morning. Okay. Uh, if you could flip in your Bibles to 1 Kings 19, given the uh, quick turn around here, I decided to just meditate on my favorite passage in the Bible. Uh, it's been frequently the most helpful for me personally. It's become a type of mission statement for my family and my kids. Uh, I found that it got me through seminary with some particularly difficult things. Uh, and so my hope here is to share it with you. I think it lays down the baseline of what the Christian life is about, what it means to be a Christian, fundamentally what it means to live as a Christian, and it's a good reminder. Uh, so we are in First and Second Kings. First and Second Kings is a depressing couple of books, not going to lie. Um, basically, the theme is the constant failure of Israel to uh, deliver on their responsibility to God, their constant failure to praise God and glorify Him. Uh, after Solomon's glory, King Solomon, at the beginning of First Kings, it just goes worse and worse and worse. But there is one string of hope that runs through First and Second Kings, and that is the presence of the prophets. And the prophets are not uh, in the Bible. Prophets don't function like, you know, telling the future. They're not like so and so will win the World Series and yada yada. That's not really their job. Their main goal, while sometimes they do seem to foresee things like uh, Christ coming. Their main goal is actually to constantly remind God's people about two paths that are laid out for us in Psalm 1. Uh, blessed is the way of the righteous. They're like uh, trees. They're like oaks of righteousness. And the wicked will perish. And they constantly are saying this message to Israel. Hey, be careful. There are two ways you can go. One pleases God. One does not. That's what the prophets do. Uh, God's greatest judgment actually to his people would be silence. Right? Uh, as long as God is speaking, he is constantly entreating. He is inviting people to come to him. That's his MO. Uh, at the point when he would quit speaking, it would be because that invitation no longer exists. And I think this is why when Jesus dies on the cross, what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences the silence of God, which is a heartbreaking thing we should, you know, could meditate on for a long time. So as long as the prophets are going forth, as long as God's word is going out, 
going out even like right now, as we've been hearing God's word sung and we've prayed through it together, as long as God's word is going out, there is hope God is moving towards people and inviting them to turn to him, right? That's a good thing. Well, Elijah is the prophet in this passage, and Elijah, I believe, uh, you know, it would be hard for him to preach to Israel this whole time saying, repent, and not believe it in his heart, and he deeply wants Israel to turn to God. And he thinks deep down that if there is this awesome display of God's goodness and his glory, that it would be irrefutable that God is good, that he supports Israel, that he should be turned to, that he's the one to trust. That's what Elijah thinks. If only this big event would happen, then everyone would turn to God, they would see his glory, and I wouldn't have to constantly beg people to obey God, they would just obey God. Well, he gets this moment uh, in what's the closest thing to like a Western shootout showdown in the Old Testament. Elijah faces off with these prophets, these pagan prophets who worship other gods. And they set up this kind of divine showdown. They're like, hey, well, we're just going to put our sacrifices out and we'll see whose God responds and incinerates the sacrifices, right? Right. so, you know, Elijah's like, you first, and the prophets go out, and they do everything they can, and they're whipping themselves and crying out to their gods to burn up this pile of sacrifices, and nothing happens. And Elijah gets up, and he's so confident. He's like, dump water on mine. Just, like, make it as hard as possible. And then praise to God, and whew, the sacrifices go up. And there's this quick moment of everyone sees the truth, the, prophet, the evil prophets that have been leading God's people astray are put to death. And Elijah feels like maybe this is the moment when the whole everyone will finally turn. It's, it's irrefutable. Look what just happened. But instead, we get this. This is 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel, king and queen, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, that it is good, that you want us to hear it this morning. Please soften our hearts. Help us to see that you are good. Help us to see how we can depend on you. And in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, There's been an interesting... uh, There have been some interesting studies that have come out recently noting that since 2009, teenage depression and anxiety has dramatically increased. And and this um, this is not just our standards for evaluating that have decreased because it's come with all of the actual physical, biological signs of anxiety and depression. It is a real thing that is happening. I, I can't quote the exact numbers, but they're very alarming. It's like double the amount of depression and anxiety among teenagers. Uh, as someone who teaches, obviously, I'm, I'm really tuned into this. I think about this uh, quite a bit. Uh, 
And I, I notice that um, one of the things that you know, we do when we're really anxious or depressed is it's called catastrophizing, and it means that you kind of expect the worst possible outcome, or you take that outcome and apply it to the, the highest possible level. For instance, I see it every time I pass back uh, any kind of assignment to my students, if a student makes a B or a C, and I hear, I'm such a failure, I'm a loser, I'm worthless, right? That's catastrophizing. They, they have taken uh, what is, a mean, like, ultimately, in the big scheme of things, a meaningless grade, right? I mean, you will not, they will not remember what they scored on that quiz. And they are making a giant character judgment about themselves, right? I am this. And uh, I, I tell my students, I'm like, if, if that's true of you, you know, if every time I pass out a quiz or an assessment, your entire worth and character is on the line. That is an incredibly stressful place to be. You, you can't sustain it there, right? Uh, at some point, you have to resist the temptation to agree that a GPA is your inherent worth, you know? Uh, GPA, all those things, it's like taxes. It's kind of like a deal we have to make. Like, I don't like being a tax number, but it's a deal I make to live in a society. And in the same way, to enter into this society frequently, you have to make deals about, okay, you can evaluate me as a GPA, but frequently I notice my students internalize that as their actual worth. I, it's not my GPA is a three-point whatever. It is I am a three-point whatever. Um, and I, I see some of these deep kind of catastrophizing and those kinds of things. And as I see it in my students, I also notice it in the way we speak to one another, the way we think about society at large. I think social media is basically just this writ large forever. Uh, everything is constantly the worst all the time forever, and it affects you on the deepest possible level all the time forever. You're just constantly in this state of high extreme urgency. Um, I think it's really, uh, a brief aside, I think it's really alarming for younger people and worth thinking about very seriously and deeply about what we allow our young people to read and those kinds of things. It's hard enough on adults. I mean, you watch adults on social media and you're like, what happened to you, you know? Um, so I, I think it's easy for us to, both on the low level, frequently experience hopelessness, and on the big level, like Elijah, kind of look around culturally and experience a level of hopelessness, and to look out there and go, is anything good happening at all? Uh, is God still doing his thing, you know? Is the spirit still moving? Uh, or is all this just kind of wasting our time? And I think we can empathize, empathize with Elijah for feeling that way. Well, this passage shows us that the reason we have to trust God is because we ultimately, we do have too far to go. We don't have the right supplies, and we can't see how God is working. Those three things are true. We have too far to go. We don't have the right supplies. We can't see how God is working, and so we have to trust in him. So if we're looking at our passage, Elijah, you know, he's had this big moment He's hit his prophetic grand slam in the bottom of the ninth. Uh, all of the sacrifices have burned up, and he thinks, you know, now is the time. And when the king and queen send their messenger, I imagine what he's hoping he'll hear is, you were right, and we repent, and we, we turn to God now. And instead, the messenger's like, yeah, the king and queen are going to come kill you. Which seems a little, why would you send a messenger to say, I'm going to kill you, right? Like, why not just kill the person? I think uh, Jezebel is calling her shot. 
She's so confident at his inevitable death that she's like, I am just even going to tell you that I'm coming to kill you. I want you to experience the agony of knowing that you have failed to turn people to God for a little while before I actually kill you. And Elijah is just beside himself, depressed. He, he thought that this was it. This was going to do it. He dismisses his servant. Uh, he wanders out into the wilderness. He expresses suicidal thoughts. He asks that he might die. An interesting line. He says, I am no better than my father's. He just kind of reflects on himself like, I, I'm not even better. My fathers have failed in lots of ways. I've failed in the same ways. The pattern's repeated. There's no hope. Go ahead, just like, I'm done, end it. And he who just saw God incinerate these sacrifices now kind of just sits and waits for God to do the same thing to him. Well, I don't think he knows the character of God very well or how God responds to someone like this. And if we keep reading, look with me in 5 through 8. It says, Elijah lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. I think that message that he tells Elijah is true of our entire lives. The journey is too great for you. That's true. It's a true thing. The journey is too great for us. Weirdly, this is an incredibly relieving thing for me to hear. Because we spend so much time trying to convince ourselves and everyone else that that is not true. That I got this. I can pull this out. And what the angel shows up and says, you can't. It's okay. The journey is too great for you. That's how it's supposed to go. Russell Moore is, um, he's, the, he's like, he holds an office, I don't know the exact title. He's like the head ethics guy for the Southern Baptist Church. Uh, I like him very much, read a lot of his stuff. He uh, adopted two children from a very impoverished orphanage in Russia. And when he brought his kids back to the orphan, uh, back, back home, and they set them up and gave them rooms and all these kinds of things, after a few weeks, they started finding little stockpiles of food around the house. And they realized that the sons they had adopted did not be believe that it would be cut off, that it would eventually end, and had started hiding food because they thought, well, when that happens, I need to have my own stash. I need to take care of myself. I think frequently we operate that way, don't we? We've been invited into the household of God. We've been protected. We've been given everything we need. The father looks at us and says, this is my son. This is my daughter with whom I'm well pleased. And we just keep tucking things away, right? Uh, just in case he's not enough. Or maybe even just in case I'm not enough. We don't trust that God genuinely loves us, that he's brought us into his household. We don't have anything else left to prove. Christ proved it all on the cross for us. Here's the big kicker is it is so, so easy to think that Christianity is just another way to independence. It is not. Christianity is a way to dependence upon God. 
It is a way to dependence upon God. And the more we make Christianity about independence, the more it is miserable and we will suffer and we will fail. Uh, you see people who believe that the moment they become Christians, there's all this grace, and then their life as a Christian is miserable and, and a slog, and it's a battle, and you realize that the grace they experienced in that conversion hasn't followed them through the life themselves, right? Uh, when they think about Christianity, they don't speak about Jesus with sweetness or with affection, and I think it's because they think they're on their own, and they're not. The journey is too great for them. The Father supports us. And I want to point out, this is not like learned helplessness. Dependence on God does not look like, well, I can't do anything. If we look in the scriptures, we constantly see people who are incredibly brave and courageous. We see Stephen the martyr. We see Paul making, with ambitions, making plans to get to Rome. We see like Jacob as Esau is coming towards him, pray to God and then do everything he can to protect his family. It actually creates even more agency, even more action, because we have the comfort of knowing that we have a father who's protecting and supporting us and guiding us. It's not learned helplessness, it's learned dependence, right? It's very close to, um, my wife is awesome, and uh, she's been homeschooling our children this past year, and Murray, my six-year-old, at one point we're sitting eating dinner and he decides that he doesn't really like what we're eating, uh, and he... <laughs> He gets up, we're watching, he gets up, he goes to the kitchen, he turns on the stove, puts a cast iron skillet on it, puts some bacon grease in there, cracks open an egg, fries the egg, flips it, puts it on a plate, turns off the stove, comes back, eats the egg. And I'm just like, I couldn't do that until I was 20. Um, okay, there was, there was something about that moment that uh, the way that my wife communicates with our children provides this security and dependence and faith that allows him that high level of agency, you know? It's because he knows that he's deeply loved and, and we're watching so the house won't burn down that he can go try those kinds of things and occasionally succeed. And I think that that is more what Christianity is like, right? That kind of comfort and that safety allows you to move out and act. It's a dependence that comes from knowing the journey is too great for you. It's just a true fact. So first, we see that we have too far to go, so we have to depend on God. But secondly, we don't have the right supplies. It's interesting that uh, Elijah says this big, you know, I, it's too much, I want to die. And God's just like, here's some food. Go to bed. Like, doesn't even address the question. I had a campus pastor in college, and occasionally I'd show up and be like, I feel really depressed. And he'd be like, and you'd lay out all these kind of spiritual quandaries. He'd be like, what have you been eating recently? And you're like, what are you talking about? He's like, what have you been eating recently? I'm like, lots of Burger King. He's like, uh, how much do you sleep last night? Like five hours. And like, you realize what he was saying, you know? He's like, let's just make sure you're alive first, and then we'll take care of all your existential problems. Uh, I see this with my wife as well. Um, she, uh, she has this habit where people are in a really tough place. She, they'll come hang out with her, and she gives them a plant. She gives them something to take care of and to kind of steward and keep alive, right? Uh, so the person's like, I'm really stressed out. And she's like, here's a plant. Um, it's actually really effective. Uh, and I, I think that's part of what's going on here with God, right, is Elijah has all these huge concerns. He's like, before we deal with any of that, I'm just going to take care of you. I'm going to give you food. I'm going to let you rest. 
I think some of you probably have had experiences, or you can think back to mentors or friends that when you're in their, their house, you just feel like, ah, like this extra level of relaxed, like you're not responsible for what's going on, you're at total peace. Um, I can think of a few people uh, in my life who've filled that role for me, and I think God is doing that for his people here, right? He's a God of rest. He invites us into it. He's the God who created the Sabbath. You know, that's not like a joke or something that's just kind of a side, oh, also rest. It's a gift that God gives us, a gift to rest. Uh, in seminary, I tried to take the Sabbath really seriously for the first time, and I was talking to a friend of mine, and I'm like, but what if, like, what if I don't do all the work I'm supposed to? And my friend said, it's even more important you rest on those days. Because that's the point. It's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't earn the Sabbath. Like, I had a great week, so now I can rest. The Sabbath comes irregardless. It's a gift to you to rest. It's God saying, hey, the journey's too great for you. Eat, sleep, rest. So we can see that we have to trust God because we've got too far to go. We don't have the right supplies. And finally, we can't see how God is working. So the whole point of this what God is doing and coming is to ultimately get him to God, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole point of this thing. And so we get to this moment. He, he sustains Elijah. He gives him food. He lets him sleep. And he travels to Mount Oreb, the Mount of God. And if we're looking at uh, starting in verse 9, we get this. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord and God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. The first thing that God does, well, the first thing that Elijah does, you notice there is some catastrophizing there going on right there. He's kind of exaggerating his situation. Obviously, Elijah has it tough, okay? I'm not saying Elijah's being a wimp or something. Uh, but he even says, even I only, he says, like, I'm the only faithful one left. He thinks he's totally alone. God's going to refute that in a second. But he, he is extrapolating. He's taking his circumstance to go even farther out. And then God puts on a display of all the things that Elijah thought would convince the people of God. There's the fire. There's the wind. There's the hurricane. There's all this stuff. The earthquake. But then there's just this sound of a low whisper. And it seems to me that God is communicating, I don't always work that way. Yeah, I'm not always in the special effects. Sometimes my presence is a low ebb. It's the, it's the quiet whisper. Uh, I've had the fortune of seeing, um, seeing several conversions at the Stony Brook School, and I've noticed that uh, there are, with different, ethnic, different cultures, People respond differently as they 
grow closer to God. Uh, the American culture tends to prioritize kind of a big dramatic moment, which is not bad. Many of us have big dramatic moments. I'm not at all knocking that. Uh, but I've also noticed that some cultures, uh, there seems to be this very slow, measured approach. Um, and a couple of students that I still keep up with, and I called this past week, their conversion simply was, I noticed one day they would talk about God in one way, and then the next day they started saying, like, like my father. Like, it just kind of switched. And at the end of the year, like, would you say you're a Christian now? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, and... God had come to them in the whisper, just this gentle, and one of the students I was just speaking to on the phone the other day, makes me want to cry actually, I was just speaking to him on the phone, he's a, he's a great young man, and we disagree about a lot, we argue, we fight about things, and we'll call on the phone and go back and forth, and at one point in the conversation, he was like, you know, he is, uh, he's from China, and he said, some, some people might accuse me of I got westernized when I became a Christian or all of this. And he's like, but at the end of the day, it's like my, my heritage and my ethnicity and my culture are all subservient to the fact that I'm a Christian. That's just number one. And of course, I'm like, you know, <laughs> I'm so proud of you. Uh, but the, the whisper worked on his life, and that was, that was how God moved towards uh, my student, my good friend. God doesn't always work that way in the dramatic thing. I can think personally, too, of my high school experience. When you're surrounded by high schoolers, you just think about high school all the time. Uh, I was very anxious all the time, consistently anxious, uh, pretty high levels of anxiety uh, that I think were slightly abnormal. And I remember asking God, thinking, God could just, like, take these things away, right? He could just kind of, and it would be gone. Why, why this drawn-out process? But as I look back on my life and see the ways that God has poured into me and tried to draw me to himself, I suddenly see all these rich relationships of people who have come alongside me and poured into me, uh, who had empathy for me. And I, I realized that if God had just right then, I wouldn't know how amazing the church was. I wouldn't know how great and how loving God's people are and how consistently they reach out for people who suffer and are in pain, right? God sometimes just comes in the whisper. That's really good. This is why it takes faith, because we can't always see it. And sometimes it takes a long time, and sometimes it's a year later when you say, hey, I think you're a Christian now, and you're like, oh, yeah. Or, hey, have you noticed that you are not as anxious as you used to be? You go to the grocery store, and you can get out and go get the food, and you don't sit in the car and nearly have a panic attack. Have you noticed that? Oh, yeah. God works that way. Uh, this quote, I think, nails it because, of course, for us, it's not in the strong wind that swept the Red Sea or the fire on Mount Sinai or the earthquake that shook down the walls of Jericho. Would God be brought so near to man as in the still, small voice of the child in Bethlehem? Right? The journey is too great for us, and the way that God answers that is he doesn't come and blow everything to pieces and put on. He comes as a man. He comes as Jesus. He submits to the, the uh, indecency of being a tiny child and allowing fallen sinful people to change his diaper and put him to bed and hold him when he's crying. He becomes a human. He comes to us in that whisper 
And that defines his whole life. He comes to Nicodemus at night because Nicodemus won't meet him in the day. And when he's walking up to the cross, he's ministering to the people around him consistently. The thief on the cross, the women who are weeping as they follow him. He's taking care of people all the time, that whisper. And that is the same Christ we know. That's the same Christ we pray to. The one who loves us and comes to us in a whisper. Uh, I think if we reflect for a moment, the beautiful relationships that you have, the people who love you, those kinds of things, it's so easy to forget that those things are frequently the extended hand of God, aren't they? Aren't those the places where God seems to be whispering to us about his goodness and his faithfulness to us? So Elijah was fed by these hot cakes, this bread, and we as Christians now, after the birth of Jesus, we have something greater. We have the bread of life. God's message to us is, the journey is too great for you. You can't make it. So arise and eat. The bread of life. Christ is the bread of life. Christianity is not about independence. It's not about us becoming super awesome. It's not about us being perfect so nobody can criticize us or so that God, we can earn his love. Christianity is the, the story about how we're all messed up, rebellious sinners who fail greatly, who have too far to go, journey's too great for us, we don't have the right supplies, and we have a God who loves us so deeply and tells us to lay down, feeds us food, and takes us there. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. Forgive us when we think that this is something we're doing on our own. Forgive us when we think that this is something we earn. Forgive us when we make this like everything else. Thank you that you are good, that you are tender, that you care for us, that you draw us along toward yourself. I know there are some people in this room who have endured unbearable amounts of suffering, maybe even suffering that would make them feel like Elijah, that would make them cry out, it's enough, it's enough. Father, our request to you this morning is that we would hear your voice says, arise and eat, that we would find our comfort and our dependence in you. We thank you that the end is already determined, that one day we will stand before you, that you will rejoice, that you will say, this is my son, this is my daughter with whom I am well pleased, and you will mean it when you say it. Thank you for your goodness to us. May we experience that this week, and in Jesus' name, amen.